I say no to all the uh, invitations to go and talk at um, at conferences or seminars or, or so. So I, I limit it quite a bit. But you missed your chance to have cake and coffee in a big room with lots of people. Yes, I have cakes and, and coffee in a smaller room with uh, less amounts of people, but still shit loads of meetings. <laughs> yeah, we can't, I mean, you can't stop meetings because what else would we do? Our no, life, that's right. That's our right. lives would be empty. Hey everybody, Todd Conklin, Pre-Accident Investigation Podcast. Welcome to the pod. How are you? Good, I hope. Does this find you good? Well, well's a better word than good. Well, does this find you well? There we go. That's that's much better. Hey, uh, big day today. Well, every you've noticed it, I think, but every podcast is kind of a big day because we have all these great and interesting people who have great and interesting things to say. And today is by far no exception to that rule. Johan Bergstrom from Lund University. Um, he's a senior lecturer, and he's kind of in charge of the Aviation Safety School now. Um, spends some time with us today, and it was a great conversation. Um, you'll see. I mean, I'm going to let you in. You, you get to be there, so you can be your own judge of what a great conversation is. But in my mind, this one passed as a great conversation because there's just so much to talk about right now. It's, 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 it's remarkable. The, the well of topics has never been deeper. And we have a pretty deep well when you talk about resilience and reliability anyway. I mean, even before stuff hit the fan, we had lots of stuff to talk about. But now it's remarkable because... This conversation today, no matter how you cut it, was going to be a conversation between somebody who thinks about resilience in the United States of America and somebody who thinks about resilience in Sweden. And without a doubt, those are two very different approaches to a global pandemic. Um, And not that it's a national problem because viruses tend to not really um, respect national borders, no matter how much our leadership thinks they do, but it's very, I think you'll find this to be the way Johan speaks of this. I've found comforting and helpful. And I think you will too, but again, don't let me tell you what's comforting and helpful. You get to be the charge uh, in charge of what's comforting and helpful. How are you doing in all that is going on right now? Because now is a really interesting time because we're, at least in our hemisphere, approaching the, the, the height of summertime activities. And yet there's a, there's a real paradox that we're having to manage. We'll talk about that too today. But there's a real, there's a, there's a, um, we have to hold two ideas in our head at the same time. We have to think about the fact that there's a virus that's, um, remarkably sneaky and there's a need to to do things that are fun and interesting and those two things have to live simultaneously and that's kind of in essence what we're doing what we're managing and so there we go but enough of that let's let's move carefully into what we want to do today which is share this information and this conversation between johan and myself 
Johan, he's from Lund University, and they, they do the learning labs. The master's program is amazing. I've just so many um, remarkable and fun people have been in and come through that that program. I just love what it does, the the cohort relationship that it creates, the collegial relationship, kind of a peer-to-peer relationship that's really fun to watch. And these guys are great. That's why when given the chance to put Johan on the podcast, he's been on the podcast before, but it's kind of unfair. It's not unfair how he was on it, but um, it was a, a snippet of a lecture that he gave which was great. I mean, on human error, it was amazing. But that was years ago. It was probably almost six years ago when he was on the podcast. It's time to have him talk now. And um, it was it was easy to coordinate. He's really attainable, super friendly and nice guy with lots to say, and he makes you think. It's about the perfect companion for a long train trip or to share a uh, – iced tea under the sun sitting underneath a a willow tree next to a river someplace you can sort of figure out where you want to have this conversation and then go there because it's a podcast so you can just take take us with you this is worth listening to and it's worth listening to because this is a really good chance once again to talk about what we do not just from a technical standpoint but really from an ethical standpoint and that's kind of where this conversation goes and I can't wait for you to hear it. So I guess if I can't wait for you to hear it, the next thing I should do is probably play it. So sit back and relax. This is Johan Bergstrom from Lund University, senior lecturer, and he's going to tell us all about the world, at least the world we talked about on a Tuesday morning in the midst of COVID-19, 2020. Uh, no, so I'm at the moment uh, working as a senior lecturer in risk and safety at uh, Lund University, located in southern Sweden, um, teaching primarily our master's students in human factors and system safety, and I also have managerial duties for our Lund University School of Aviation. Um, so currently my research efforts are limited to PhD student supervision, and I'm I'm pretty happy about that setup at the moment. It works well. Lund has played such an important role in the transition to uh, a more contemporary view of safety. Why do you think that is? Uh, well, it started with uh, Sidney Decker being a, a professor here at our School of Aviation. From um, He came here in 2005 and he started this, uh, what has become a, a think tank almost, uh, the master's program in human factors and system safety. He started that in 2006. Uh, and that's really been the... Uh, uh, the space where where we have explored this uh, critical thinking side of of safety theory together, this uh, new view safety differently, safety to uh, Rasmussen uh, safety school of thought together with uh, highly experienced students. It's, it's almost that we shouldn't call them students or we all become students rather. Uh, we're very fortunate to work with students in a setting where we learn more than we teach, actually. So our approach our approach is to teach a critical perspective to any analysis of safety management and practice, and then we learn how to apply that perspective from our, our students. So it's really a learning experience from, from us. I'm learning, and the entire team is learning about how to conduct completely new accident investigations from Osur and Christian. We learn about uh, the patient safety discourse from Chris, Dog, Pip, Michael, Hein, and Carl. 
We learn about Heinrich from Karsten. We learn about the management of IT outages from John, Paul, Laura, Nora, and others. Uh, learn about how to apply Rasmussen's boundary thinking in a lab for infectious diseases uh, from Vigi. And so what I'm trying to say is that this is not an environment to which people come and expect to be taught, but they expect to be challenged in their ways of thinking and, and they expect to learn from each other. Uh, rather than from from us. So to me, this is what, what being a university is all about, offering a space for critical thought and reasoning in a field such as ours. So it's not that we have been influential in, in this, but it's really our former students who have been influential in how they have applied um, their critical thinking skills that they might have gained here uh, in their fields of practice. What's keeping you sustainable post-Decker? Because I, I, I think it's actually highly complimentary that, that when Sydney leaves, it, the, the program moves on. It, it sustains itself, correct? Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, we have a steady stream now of, of people who come to the program for what I just described. Um, they don't come here for me or for Anthony or for... Uh, Matt or Karsten or any other of our teachers, they uh, they come uh, because we have that reputation of offering this uh, this space for critical thought. So I think that that is by now the I hope that that is the reputation of of the program. That's the sense that I get that it's it's standing on um, on sort of the grounds of that that critical thinking space, which is of course. A heritage from um, from how Sydney set it up and from his uh, school of thought, uh, no doubt about that. Um, but it has become sort of a, a program in its own right, definitely over the last um, soon, yeah, eight years that I have been program director for it. Wow, eight years! Have you have you seen it change? Has it morphed? Is it is it is it becoming different? Is it moving into different directions and places? Uh, yes and no. Um, uh, when uh, when I participated almost as a student, when I was a PhD student and participated in learning labs, the uh, uh, atmosphere was uh, pretty much the same as it is today. Of course, content changes, some teaching styles changes, um, um, students. What do you see changing in the world of this This. Uh, this new understanding of safety I, I i don't know what to call it i'm i'm i've worked in this area so long and i still have no idea what to call what we do yeah i no no me neither um do you mean what is safe what what is changing um I, so, so let me ask the question better because i think it was a kind of a weak question with with the advent of a global pandemic the notion of safety as a capacity has become much more interesting and, and probably much more important. How do you see that changing the work you're doing with students or the work practitioners do with organizations? It is probably too early to tell, uh, but I hope that we that this will make us able to raise a discussion, for instance, focusing on resilience from 
a focus on sharp and resilience to a focus on system resilience. Um, if, if there is something we have been quite good at within a safety differently, safety to new view community, whatever you might call it, I'm, I'm also confused with, when it comes to terms. Uh, it is the notion of standing up for sharpened staff and, and perhaps too often uncritically celebrate what we would see as resilience at that level uh, or, or the uh, ensuring of safety practices at that level despite any system brittleness and frailties that that we might um, put ourselves in front of at the same time so i hope that this situation will make us able to better see how there are great ethical problems with asking shop and staff to work the number of hours they currently do, of asking them to build their own protective equipment or, or sometimes even work without it, that, that such behaviors are signs of resilience despite the system and not signs of a resilient system. And I'm paraphrasing Richard Cook there, who said that so, so eloquently several years ago. And while we, of course, should still celebrate the level of innovation, creativity and resilience which takes place at a sharpened level, we should also see those behaviours as symptoms, sometimes as symptoms of brittle systems and to call such brittleness out when we see it, to start a discussion about what capacities and resources do we need to have in place for people to adapt in the first place. So the opportunity that the pandemic has given um, really the field to have much more applied discussions is there. What, what do you think we should do with that opportunity? I, I think this entire situation will raise great question. And I, I hope that it will spark a good discussion about ultimately how we take care of each other in times of great adversity and trauma. Um, that's also something that I think this contemporary school of safety science has, has tried to do for many years. And hopefully that discussion can, can be sparked by this. Hopefully. I'm, I'm not sure that that will take place, but hopefully we will see a discussion that to a much greater extent have, is, is balanced when it comes to how do we take care of each other. And we have used, in, in our field, we have used categories such as, as first and second victims to try to define um, various goals for, for such a discussion. But I hope that we can have a more informed and more um, um, nuanced and humble discussion um, about the care for each other and, and moving on in and post great adversity and trauma. I don't know if that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense, but I guess what I would pull the string on is how do we have the conversation to move that resilience focus away, not away from the sharp end, but to include really the rest of the stick, the, the, the system side of that, because that opportunity is there. I think companies are right now are really struggling with the ability that when something bad happened, they didn't really have the capacity to draw on it and did have to count on the adaptability of their workers. Yeah, um, yeah would... and, and, but also find the, the success stories of how 
highly complex systems were able to, to adapt. I'm impressed that in my country, the Stockholm region, which is by far the most affected by this situation, has been able to quadruple the amount of, of ICU beds available in just a couple of weeks' time. I'm impressed that my own organization, a university, has been able to adapt to an online teaching-based teaching model for nearly 40,000 students, and we did so in two days. So I think there are also interesting stories of successful adaptive capacities at higher system levels to be, to be told post uh, post this and and also stories of of great trauma and failure the level of spread in um, in swedish elder care is is a great tragedy and um, um and and we see that in in other countries as well so um but a balanced discussion about system level adaptive capacities I, I hope that we will uh, be able to to have that and and the ethics of any measures that we take the ability to look at where we have succeeded where systems have have really arose to meet the challenge i think that's incredibly valuable learning i fear and i guess maybe i'm i would get your idea on this i fear that the the push to return back to normal, whatever normal means, will will potentially push organizations away from the ability to learn really how they succeeded and how they failed. I, I, I'm concerned by this, and, and I think of it often. And I guess I would struggle. I'm not sure what normal looks like, and I'm not sure we're going back to normal. But I think the challenges we have to bounce forward in kind of a, a David Woods terminology to to better, more resilient systems is really available to us if we play our cards right. I couldn't agree more. And, and we see great risks associated with that. We see uh, uh, countries that take the opportunity to uh, take a more authoritarian direction uh, in this in this crisis. Um, we see how how um, the pandemic, at least in in Europe, seems to affect different groups in an unequal way. Um, uh, and and yeah, so so I'm I also see great risks with uh, with uh, where we are currently heading. What has surprised you? I. Being a Swede, I have been honestly surprised by how, um, um, how especially in in the U.S. It's interesting to have this conversation with you now. I'm interested. I'm, I'm surprised by how uh, the Swedish response has been politicized um, in a partisan way in uh, in a country like the US that that surprised me a great deal i'm actually surprised that the swedish response is seen as so controversial um, because in my uh, from from my perspective it's not that different from uh, many other countries response um, so the i guess how political it's all become has uh, surprised me Agreed. 
and and shockingly surprised. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I I think um, if I if I try to be sort of an anthropologist in my home country, which is very hard to uh, to sort of study yourself, uh, what might be hard to understand about a Swedish response is sort of the um, um, the strong social contract that exists between state and citizens, the high confidence that we have in government officials, and that that is really no no tension uh, politically here as well. So, um, so a Swedish response, which is very much um, uh, run by independent expert authorities, such as now the Public Health Agency, is really not seen... Uh, through a political divide back home here, uh, it gets used that way elsewhere, and and that um, I find interesting and uh, in, uh, interesting to uh, to watch. Um, but I guess I, I shouldn't be surprised because we are in those times where where uh, anything uh, can become used for for uh, political and, and partisan and very divisive purposes. So I probably shouldn't be as surprised as I have been, but I, I have been. It's it's interesting to me that the pandemic, the, the COVID-19 virus, which in many ways is this, it, it's a remarkable virus in, in its ability to do what it does. Um, and its timing seems quite remarkable. All mm. those things have really put together uh, a relatively interesting risk picture and our responses to it do seem to kind of follow these geopolitical lines around the globe. The learning I think that I struggle with on my side is if you run an organization, maybe an organization with a global reach, you're really dealing with, at least as I see it, uh, a very complex failures that has three very distinct categories. There's the, there's the health failure, the pandemic failure. There's the economic failure or crises, maybe is a better word than failure. And then there's the psychological failure. And mm-hmm. they're just now kind of all coming together and meeting in this ability to get back to, to uh, some kind of stability. What's the psychological failure? I, I think people are really dealing with um, chronic stress. I think there's All right. dramatic amounts of depression. I think the loss of psychological safety. Um, mm. I think there's there's been a remarkable belief that um, things that could never happen actually happened. And and I think that all of those kind of it, it's almost like we're dealing with three crises or maybe more. Uh, and and they're sort of moving at different times. No, I, I yeah, I fully agree. And at the same time, it's sort of a a trivially easy risk to foresee and that we have foreseen for many years. It's been in every um, national risk analysis of any country on earth. This global pandemic is something that might happen. It's just been too big of a crisis to for us to accept preparing for. We have sort of deliberately... I shouldn't say deliberately, perhaps, but it's been an accepted risk. And and I think that's also a discussion that we could have post-COVID-19 
uh, is, is a discussion about accepted risk, which I think has been pretty much missing in our previous debates and, and theoretical discussions. Um, that also comes down to the very nature of resilience. You can't show your resilience without accepting great risk. Resilience requires risk. So, so what risks do we think that it's fair to ask people to be resilient towards? Um, and, and I, yeah. So let me it's, it's interesting to see now in while, while this is ongoing how uh, how UK government is uh, um, sort of hiding a risk analysis from a couple of years ago or or an exercise the results of an exercise of a pandemic scenario uh, that they held a couple of years ago and and those kinds of of stories again of the political level of this but the political level which actually shows how this is societally accepted risk that we have sort of not only accepted that it's there but but not invested in the capacities to adapt to once it's once it would show and that's not sort of a um just a luxurious hindsight statement it's it's a statement on the need for a discussion about what risks that we actually accept in in our society especially when they are um uh, affecting different groups uh, in society in different ways, as is the case with uh, with this pandemic, I think. Well, and I think probably a case could be made that risk is always political. I mean, there's there's sure. always there's always a, an element of of some kind of power relationship that exists around the notion of risk and who has risk and who determines risk. To me, what I've thought about Johan, and it's it's been in my mind a lot, is that is 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 the efficiency thoroughness a trade-off to to quote Eric Hulnagel's work, is it a trade-off or is it a paradox? And, <laughs> and I've I've really struggled with the fact and, and I think this is in sort of result of, of what we're all going through collectively as a globe, that I'm not certain I know we're in the middle of a of a, a tension between efficiency and thoroughness, between being safe and getting back to work. But my guess is what once we saw as a trade-off or could speak of as a trade-off is really more of a paradox. What do you think? Mm, nice. No, I like that. Uh, wonderful, wonderful question to pose. Yeah. And, and I think what the, the resilience discourse would, would add to this is you, what you mentioned with Woods before, the sort of the gracefulness of the response, the tempo of action. Do we throw all we have at uh, at the situation at first or um, would we sort of continuously adapt in a more graceful uh, degradation or even extensibility and and when do we gracefully return to higher levels of societal functioning and it's not a simple trade-off there are so many goal conflicts involved in doing that that it's uh, you you can never get it right it's it's not um uh, on the one hand, on the other hand, there are on the fifth and sixth and seventh uh, hand of, of uh, adaptive strategies to use in a situation like this. Which moves it and into many paradoxes to yeah. Uh, to manage. Yeah, that moves it deep into paradox country. It's not it's not if then it's yes and 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 uh, and, sure. and I think I think governments and organizations and companies and universities are struggling with that, and and it's interesting to watch that happen because there is no right answer. Nope. Nope. Fully agree. You must hold 
oftentimes very contrasting ideas in your head at the same time. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Which has been interesting to watch in our world, where we want risk to be incredibly clean, incredibly predictable, incredibly bound by whatever bounding conditions exist, and we manage risk, or we've traditionally believed we could manage risk carefully. Yeah, and, and yeah, if there is something that we as a safety science community could add there and from a complexity perspective might be the sort of the humbleness towards making decisions in such uncertain times, hopefully. So what should we take out of here as a, as a professor, as, a, as somebody who serves as a mentor and guide for PhD students globally? What are you hoping the outcome of this is going to be for us? Perhaps what I what I just uh, said, an increased humbleness towards those who who have to make really hard decisions, both at the very blunt ends and at the very sharp ends. Hopefully, um, a new language to discuss the care for each other uh, during, before, and after harmful uh, and and traumatic events. Uh, I hope that the post-COVID-19 discussion will be uh, less about accountability um, and more about moving on together. From Johan Bergstrom's lips to our ears. Does that seem like a profound way? What do you think? The whole notion, I actually think, so it was a great conversation. I loved it. But when he led the thinking by saying, really looking at the movement from a traditional approach on sharpened resilience to more systems resilience, moving resilience up that stick, um, that is a game changer. Actually, what I think that is is a description of the journey we're all on. And I am so pleased we took the time to have this conversation. What what an amazing thing. Thank you, my friend, for talking to us. And thank you for listening. It's been really fun uh, having you hanging out with me today. I'll, I'll talk to you again tomorrow, so don't worry. We'll be around, so we'll see each other. We're still friends. Meet you on uh, LinkedIn or whatever the crap that thing's called. Until then, learn something new every single day. I know you did today. Have as much fun as you possibly can. Be kind to each other, as kind of Johan's final thought was, and for goodness sakes, be safe.